action. Welcome to Torn Stubs, a trash movie podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcast at Trash, which could be found at movetotrash.co.uk, and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And the D is silent. The D is silent. The Joshua Winning, and we're going to the movies. We're going to continue our deep dive right up into Quentin Tarantino's filmography with Django Unchained, his 2012 Western. Joshua, the D is silent. Django is in chains, but not for long. When slave Django, played by Jamie Foxx, is freed by a German bounty hunter called Dr. King Schultz, played by Christoph Waltz, he agrees to help him single out Dr. King's target. But an unlikely friendship forms between the pair, and Dr. King agrees to help Django take down Calvin Candy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, the rich white playboy, who is keeping his wife, Brumhilda, played by Kerry Washington, captive. So together, they horse ride across slave time America to bring the white man to justice. Boom. This is a really unusual entry, I think, in the QT franchise, I would say. Franchise? Well, his IP. His IP. His world, his universe. He creates his yeah. own universes, doesn't he? The QT universe. The Qtiverse. Yeah, the Qtiverse. The I like Q-tiverse. it. The <laughs> He's got really good nails. <laughs> Why is it an unusual one? Because it it takes not only the, the name and theme tune from a 1966 Italian spaghetti western. Called? Called Django. Yeah. Simply just Django. But then it it kind of takes those aspects, but then Tarantino just does his own thing with them. But he does that in all his films. He, but not quite so explicitly. Not, no, 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 not quite so... Ex- I mean, yes, explicitly, but not to the point where he's stolen a title. In fact, he mm. has. Inglourious Bastards, spelt differently, oh, was the yeah. name of a 50s um, war film. No, that's true. But yeah. he does things like, you know, Bruce Lee's jumpsuit red and yellow he completely ripped off yeah. completely wholesale for uma thurman's costume in the bride yeah in, in for, of the bride in in kill bill his was a full-on onesie with feet <laughs> and little mittens and hers was a two-piece motorcycle suit so he's done this before that yeah, he has ha- done this before yeah actually thinking about it i read a quote from him uh, recently where tarantino said um the best filmmakers don't do homages, they just steal. And he's, he admits, you know, I steal from all over the place. So he, oh, yeah, he's, he's referred to his filmmaking style as hip-hop sampling filmmaking. Mm. He takes a bit from here, a bit from there, adds his own flavour, makes it all a, together. Whiskey drink? He drinks a vodka drink. He drinks a cider drink. Songs are the best times. He's in Gollum as well. He has, my precious film. <laughs> But he does that. He just he he steals from here. He steals from there. Yeah. He steals from everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> He's Doctor Seuss. <laughs> had you seen it before watching it for this? Yeah, I saw it when it was released in cinemas, and I had seen the original Django. Oh, before um, or after? Long, a couple of years beforehand. I think either I rented it out from uh, what was it called, Love Film, when that was still around. Oh yeah, yeah, I rented it from them, but I, d- I can't remember if I rented it purely because I knew Tarantino's film was coming out or yeah. I, I think I was going through a Western period. It's not um, unusual for when Quentin Tarantino films come out, it's not unusual for 
all the old ones that have influenced the new ones, his new one, mm. to be re-released on DVD. And, and often it's Quentin Tarantino Presents. Yeah. So Shogun Assassin was re-released on DVD as Quentin Tarantino Presents around the time that Kill Bill was coming out. Yeah, that's great because it means that all these obscure films that he is wholesale stealing from mm. get to have their moment in the spotlight, whereas they will have been underground cult stuff that... Just completely forgotten. Disappearing, yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's great. And um, and I really loved the original Django. Like, the theme tune is amazing. Django! And the um, he drags around a coffin. It's, it's Franco Nero who does appear in this version. Of yeah. It. And, um, What's your name? I know your name. The D said, I know. <laughs> it's and my name. Walks out. Yeah, see you. Collects his check and leaves. <laughs> Thank you for my six hundred dollars. It's very it's such a it's a very cool, grubby, complicated and kind of almost it's quite disturbing. Um, I've never seen it. It's really great. And he, he drags around this coffin through the dirt and you're like, what is in that coffin? And then later What's on, in the coffin? What's in the box? What's in the coffin? Not Glyn- so, yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow, unfortunately. No. Well, good. <laughs> that went very I dark. Her fucking goop. I saw this when it was first released, mm. and um, I think it was the first Quentin Tarantino film I had seen in the cinema since Death Proof, and I think Death Proof was actually the first Quentin Tarantino film I ever saw in the cinema. Oh wow! Yeah, you were late to the table. Late to late to the party. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fashionably late. Always. Yeah, and I'm always the last to leave. And you'll always claim you were there first. Hundred <laughs> percent. I couldn't Tarantino. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember, I remember enjoying it. I remember thinking it was fun. But I also remember thinking it took far too long to get to Candyland. Yeah, I agree. But it's weird this time watching it. I didn't feel that so much because yeah. possibly because I'm in such a Quentin Tarantino zone because we're watching them in order and I've done nothing but watch Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Both the films and interviews with him, because I yeah. love how he shuts people down. Like, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there. Yeah, or he goes, I reject your hypothesis. <laughs> I reject your thesis. How do you come back from that? It's like, yeah. you've just rejected me completely. <laughs> yeah. um, but possibly because I was familiar with the film. I'd seen it in the cinema. I'd seen it once before. Uh, sorry, once since. And now uh, this past week I watched it. Okay. It's, um, I, f- I kind of feel like it is a film of two halves like the first half is very much about Django Freeman he's now been freed by Dr. King I love how he has a Jewish surname Freeman yeah like Morgan Freeman oh yeah he's not Jewish no I don't think so the guy in uh, Love, Simon he's black and Jewish oh yeah he was wasn't he that's why that was why it was such a shock that it was him in the end because he's Jewish and also black and gay (laughs) Jesus pile up more minorities than me eek I'm gay Jewish what's the uh, Jewish ex- exclamation for that sort of thing oh oi oi yeah oi vey oi oi vey what are you doing I don't know <laughs> do you want a piece of cake I got out of bed for this you call this a bagel <laughs> what's that from uh, Judaism <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great but the first half of the film is this this bonding of Django and Dr. King and it, it's almost like a buddy film. Yeah. They go on a, a quest, a horse riding quest yeah. to take down um, men that Dr. King is going to collect a bounty on. The and Brittle Brothers. The Brittle Brothers. Yeah. They, aren't there like a couple of brothers throughout the film? Um, Who were the first two? Who were shot dead on the horses at the very start? Aren't they brothers as well? I, oh, I think maybe. 
I think they're maybe brothers, but it's not relevant to the plot. No. But the Brittle brothers definitely are because it's what they bond over. Yeah. Schultz and... Oh, it's the Specs. Janko. The Speck brothers are the, the first brothers. Yeah. But what I, what I felt was the relationship between Dr. Schultz and Django initially felt very father and son. Mm. He frees him. He nurtures him. He teaches him how to shoot. He tells him stories around the campfire. Mm. He teaches him manners, helps him with his reading. Yeah. It's very much reminiscent of Mr. White and Mr. Orange in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I could see that. Because uh, because Django hasn't been afforded the same chance in life and the same opportunities that Dr. Schultz had. Yeah, for obvious reasons. So he's passing on the knowledge. And he's, I think Dr. Schultz or Dr. King, he's such a great character because... I don't feel like I've really seen this kind of character before where he's an outsider in this, in this kind of in a similar way to Django. He's not oppressed in the same way that Django is. He's was. not American though, is he? But that's the thing. He's not he's American. German. So he, he exists outside of this weird America slave vacuum. Yeah. And he comes into it shocked actually like he he actually is shocked by it almost to his own peril. Yeah. He, he, he wants to pay $500 to free a slave who Candy, Leonardo DiCaprio, wanted yeah. to do five fights, but only actually did three. And and Schultz is so upset by the fact that this guy looks like he's going to be torn to pieces by dogs. Yeah. That he gets up and forgets his own um, safety and just says, I'll pay the $500. And then Django is actually the one who says, no, you fucking won't. Yeah. Sit down. <laughs> We've got bigger, yeah. bigger fridge which, to fry. Yeah, which we can, we can definitely come on to. Later, I also feel this is Quentin Tarantino's, or at least for the first half of this film, this is his first out-and-out comedy. Which you wouldn't expect, given it's the, the slavery setting is so present. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's, it's not just comedy. I think it's, it's um, leaning towards satire. Yeah, absolutely. Just the first half of this film, just the first half, you've got... The initial shooting of the slave owners yeah. at, at the start of the film. One gets his head literally blown off and the other one, the horse gets the head blown off and the guy's moaning, not in any um, way to elicit sympathy, but a very comical way. Mm. He's moaning because he's got a, a 1,500 ton, <laughs> ton, 1,500 ton? <laughs> How big is that? 1,500 kilogram horse on him. They're Tra- quite Trapping his leg. Fucking heavy horse. Yeah. Leaning on him. Then you've got... Um, Shooting the sheriff, which is hilarious. Yeah. It's like, now you can get the marshal. But he didn't shoot the deputy. No, he didn't. The bouncing um, tooth is hilarious on top of his wagon because yeah. he's posing as a dentist. And it's like this, literally a bouncing tooth. It's yeah. hilarious. It's like a clown. Like a child's, yeah, like a child's toy or a clown's... The child catch is um, coming to get you. Yeah, like a clown's... Um, fe- uh, not feather, flower. flower yeah. yeah. Don't treat Django like an N-word. And the, the girl goes, you want me to treat him like a white person? Mm. No. I didn't say that. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's very, very... I mean, there's a very fine line between hammering home the, the, the complete absurdity and the complete craziness of the slave trade and completely lampooning it. There's also the KKK hood scene yeah. with like, I can't, I can't see shit. It's very Mel Brooks. It felt that was as close to Blazing Saddles as I've seen anything get in years. Yeah. 
it's highlighting the stupidity and the hypocrisy of the slave trade, but in a very intelligent way, mm. which is odd for Quentin Tarantino because he's not always wanting to put a message in his films. This might be his yeah. first message movie. Mm, maybe. I don't know. He talks a lot about, like he said, um, he wanted to do in movies that deal with America's horrible past with slavery and stuff, but do them like spaghetti westerns, not like big issue movies. I want to do them like their genre films, but they deal with everything that America has never dealt with because it's ashamed of it. Yes. And I do kind of see what he's saying, but at the same time, there's a danger that it becomes flippant and there's a danger that it becomes so cartoonish in a similar way to Colour Purple, which we covered on the podcast in season one. But the thing with Colour Purple was... Yes, it had such a... I, I wouldn't call it the colour purple flippant. I would just call it just far too light because mm. Spielberg was inexperienced of doing anything with a deep subtext. Yeah. Everything was popcorn on the surface. It was enjoyable. You know, Jaws is an in, incredibly enjoyable movie, but it's not a message movie. It's very mm. frivolous. Well, what is the, is, he, is the message violence begets violence? You know, that... The oppressed, the, the oppressed has to use the violence of the oppressor to actually free themselves. Because that seems to be what is actually being said in this film. I don't think that's necessarily the message here. I have a quote from Tarantino. He was speaking in a Channel 4 interview at the time. He said he wanted to give black American males a Western hero. Give them a cool folklore hero that could actually be empowering and pay back blood for blood. Mm. So if his, if the message is violence begats violence, it's not a negative message, it's a positive one. Mm. I can see, yeah, I can see what he's saying. I think that, and the problem is that I think the movie falls apart when uh, Dr. Schultz dies, because you lose that that buddy stuff that was so strong. And I understand that maybe the narrative demanded that for Django to step out as a hero on his own yeah. without the support of a white man. That totally makes sense. But I just felt that it ended on a bit of a whimper rather than a kind of a celebratory fuck yeah. It's like lethal weapon with only mm. Murtaugh instead of Riggs as well. Yeah. And, I think, like, I totally, I totally get that they had to get rid of Schultz because he does. Django does need to strike out and become that self-possessed hero. Yes, but narratively, it just didn't really work, and I think it, it should have had a stronger ending. Like, he suddenly comes across these stupid Australians, one of them played by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> yeah. He's not Australian. Josh, <laughs> Can you tell? He is not Australian. Did you know? <laughs> He's not really because I was really He's sure. Not, He's I was confused not for a minute. I mean, I'm going to say it again. <laughs> He's not Australian. My it's mind, unbelievable. It is such a great performance that, you know, I, I was sold. I'm even sorry. Michael Parks doesn't even attempt the Australian <laughs> accent. He's just like, I'm just going to play Michael Django. Parks. Django? Is this guy's name Django? <laughs> Charlene? <laughs> You're terrible, Django. <laughs> um, is it appropriate for Quentin Tarantino to step up and think about even being the white guy to give the black guy the hero mm, it's that night m night Shyamalan thing isn't it where you you 
for some reason the director decides that he's going to insert himself into the story as this kind of savior or like enabler for the hero which is in general he said he wanted to give black american males a western hero give Mm. them a cool folklore hero that could actually be empowering yeah but it's is it his place to do that is it empowering for considering the history that america has with its black citizens is it appropriate for a white guy to give Mm. not gift give the the black community a hero is it empowering for them if they have to get the hero from a white guy no it's not and that's why it's interesting to think that this came out in 2012 I just don't think that Django Unchained would get made today by Quentin Tarantino. Well, I mean, maybe it would because he's a very confident filmmaker who does whatever he wants. But the filmmaking community or film goers, it's become a thing where um, Jordan Peele get out reclaiming black voices. Yeah. Um, Spike Lee making Black Klansman. Yes. And oh, who did Black Panther? I always forget his name. Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler, yes, exactly. And he also did Creed, which... And Creed 2. Yeah, Creed 2. So it's very much a thing at the moment where it is about, you know, people reclaiming their own voices. Yes. And that wasn't a thing when when Django Unchained was made. No, it it really wasn't, was it? But it's... um... And that's why Spike Lee said, I'm not going to watch it. He He said that he will not be watching it um, he says that American slavery was not a Sergio Leone spaghetti western. It was a holocaust. My, my ancestors are slaves stolen from America and I will honour them. Yes. Um, so why isn't Spike Lee making a film like... Oh, I suppose he did, Black Handsman. But Well, yeah, he made Black Handsman, which, which touched upon racism in the 70s and then mm. drew parallels to now. Mm. But in terms of a, a modern filmmaker making a film that's about slavery, you have to look to Ava DuVernay's 13th. Mm. Fascinating, phenomenal documentary that I watch every six months. Really? I've not seen it. It's on Netflix. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, just Mm. the way it is made, Mm. the way it is pieced together. But it's such a fascinating subject that it's only like an hour and 40, but it packs so much in there that it can take up a couple of times to let everything sink in. So what's it about? So it's about the 13th Amendment, which was the amendment that abolished slavery. Uh But there was a small, there was like a small print clause. No man, little woman, they always say man in legal terms, don't they? No man can be considered a slave except in cases of incarceration. So out of that loophole came the Jim Crow laws, came the idea that well if we can't employ people as if we can't like own slaves we will just use the law to imprison them Hmm. and then use prison forced labor to continue on our businesses because a lot of businesses the the economy relied on the fact that slaves were not being free labor yeah Yeah. so where do you get free labor from after you can't Hmm. pay people because the economics won't be the same so they use the prison community but it's just because this this movie deals with america's past mm. i just wonder the film starts off as a comedy satire then when we get to Candyland, it becomes a horror yeah but all the way throughout it has a particular style of violence mm-hmm. he he's he's obviously spoken a lot quentin tarantino that he likes 
movie violence. But I just because wonder... he, li- he likes the reaction it elicits from the audience as well. Well, he enjoys it. He yeah. says he enjoys movie violence. But I wonder, is there two meanings here? So he likes movie violence. Does that mean that violence in movies, mm. i.e., on screen we see violence happening, or is it movie violence in the sense that it's the kind of unrealistic violence? that could only happen in movies. So people get shot and their heads splurge open or they get shot and they fly across the room. Yeah. So I wonder if he is wanting to make this message movie Mm. where, and I quote, he said, I am responsible for people talking about slavery in America in a way they have not in 30 years. If that is a goal, does his flippant... Mm tone and the and at times the comical violence does that not just undermine the whole thing i think the thing the thing is he says he's got these grand ambitions these lofty ambitions of what he actually wants to achieve with this kind of film but the thing that i'm realizing is tarant you have to accept that tarantino makes fantasy films he's yeah. not making films set in reality so even he's though not he's not making documentaries no even though he's attaching himself to uh, America's slavery past and commenting on it in the media, he's not necessarily beholden to any kind of facts. You know, that the um, the Mandingo fighting, the slave versus slave fighting, didn't exist. It wasn't a thing that happened. The interesting thing that did happen is that there were, in the 1840s, lots of German re- revolutionaries who left Europe and came to the US and they did become active in anti-slavery. So that's quite an interesting thing that was true. But it's, yeah, it's this weird push-pull of Tarantino states he's making a film about slavery to empower the black uh, individual, or specifically black Americans. But at the same time, he's creating something so over-the-top, so, like, cool and polished and great music and looks gorgeous. Um, He's a popcorn director. Yeah, and has, like, has loaded imagery, like when a white guy gets shot in a field, his blood spurts all over the corn, uh, not the corn, the, the, uh, the cotton, cotton buds yeah, yeah. on the, and it on looks, the plant. As, as an image, it looks beautiful. But what, and it's but obviously trying, point it's it? trying to say something like, your blood is literally on the cotton fields. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a literal, literal It's a literal, literal metaphor. metaphor. <laughs> yeah. He, he, want, he seems to want to have it both ways. He wants he to have does. his cake and eat it too in this film. Yeah. Because he, he I, I just don't think you can have it both ways. You can't, you can't be making a popcorn fantasy and wanting to have a real life message yeah. because the popcorn fantasy side will undoubtedly undermine your message. I don't. Yeah. I, I also think his hubris at mm. times threatens to undermine any good intentions he has. Yeah. He, you know, he says, I'm responsible, like I said, for people talking about slavery in America in a way they have not in 30 years. People haven't stopped talking about slavery. No. Yeah. They don't, he wants to be this white saviour Shut up, sit down, mm-hmm. let someone who knows about this talk about this. Yeah. Step forward, Spike Lee, step forward, Ava DuVernay. And I just think it's like this film, the next film, Hateful Eight, and various others that he's made, using the N-word repeatedly. And I think that we've obviously discussed that, where he's talked about his freedom of speech and how that's how people talk and blah, blah, blah. But I'm also I feel like he's he's propagating the continued existence of that word. You know, words disappear from language all the time. And the N-word obviously will never disappear because it's such a powerful and kind of totemic word. We're so synonymous with that period of time. Exactly. But you don't... But by using it constantly, it does 
remain a part of common vernacular. He uses it over 100 times in this film. Mm. And to put it into context, he only, only, he only used it <laughs> 38 times in Jackie Brown. Right. So we are, you know, over three times the amount of mm. times using it here. It's an odd one because A, historically, yes, it would have been used. Yeah. Would it have been used as much? You know, would it be, would it have been used so overtly as is in this film? Does the overuse completely normalize it? Mm. Does it take away the power that that word contains? So from mm. a storytelling point of view, if you constantly use the N-word, or if you constantly use guns, if you constantly use one aspect of something, when you want to use it in a pivotal moment, is the power lost? Yeah, I think so. Why does Django stop Schultz from saving that slave who's going to be eaten by the dogs? Um, does he? Is he worried that... Schultz standing up and offering to pay for the slave tips him too much in the favour of slaves and black people. So it would well, make Candy more suspicious. But he would be suspicious anyway because he knows Django is not a slave. Django mm. is a free man. He's called Django Freeman. Yeah. He's his valet. He's King's valet. Yeah. So it, it doesn't seem to me out of... You know, if I was... If I was um, Calvin Candy, I wouldn't think that was out of Schultz's character to suddenly offer five hundred dollars mm. for a slave. Yeah, I don't know. I was I was thinking about it when it happened. I was like, why actually is Django stopping him from doing that? I think potentially he needs to show Django needs to show Candy he's just as mean as he is. Oh yeah, because he wants to keep Candy's curiosity, and, he's, and also he's distinguishing himself from the black slave who's worthless now in the eyes of candy so he's kind of he's separating himself from that type of person yeah i mean is, is django a nice guy mm. i think it would be very difficult to be nice given what he supposedly has experienced but would yeah. that not mean he'd want to free all the slaves he just wants to free his wife doesn't he that's, yeah. that's basically his crusade is free his wife and everyone else can go to hell yeah because he doesn't help you know when he gets bought at the start yeah he doesn't free the other slaves in, mm. in, in chains. He doesn't really seem all that much interested in the slaves in the, the cage when he's killed Quentin Tarantino and the other Australians. Mm. But he does say to the two women slaves at the end to get out. Yeah, he so does. That. He does, So yeah. he's nice enough not to want them to get blown up. But... Yeah, but maybe that's because they didn't do anything to him, yeah. whereas everyone else did. But the wife... But the, the white sister, she didn't do anything to him and he shot her. She was part of Calvin's group. Yeah. But so were the, by that token, so were the, the black slaves working in the house. Because mm, they were... No, they, they're slaves. They don't have a voice of their own. They but he shot Stephen. Told. He shot Stephen. Yeah, but Stephen's a completely different kettle of fish. Stephen is a slave, but by all accounts, he's in charge. Mm. I like the parallel between Candy and Stephen and Dr. Schultz and Django. Yeah. That's a very clever Foil. setup. Yeah. Because yeah. Candy needs Stephen. He would, like, Candy is essentially a rich idiot. Yeah. Dangerous, <laughs> a dangerous yeah, rich a idiot. Head. Yeah. And Stephen is the one who's going, hmm, and like looking and seeing and judging and deciding yeah. what's true and what's really happening. Um, and. Can Stephen be. 
forgiven for his actions? No, definitely not. He's he's propagating the existence of slavery. He's he's uphold. He's actually upholding Candy's power and his uh, supremacy over basically everybody. You know, he, Stephen is the one who takes Candy aside and says, um, "They they know each other. They're fucking you up over yeah. basically." Um, and but Candy, why does he do that? Well, yeah, because. He's almost got his Stockholm syndrome, isn't it? He's he's survived by being the cleverest one and the advisor, and it's now become such second nature that he doesn't even think about what he's doing. He just does it to ensure his own survival. I get what you're saying. I, I don't think it's full on traditional Stockholm syndrome because he wasn't not ever with Candy or Candy's father. Mm. He's always been on that plantation, seventy six years. So yeah. that's his world. That plantation is his world. He has status on that plantation. Mm. If he was to go to the town next door or yeah. to another part of America where slavery was still legal, you know, in the South, in the North, it was, it was outlawed. He wouldn't have the same status. Yeah. Is it a survival thing? Is he just, is he using the slave trade and the, the culture to survive? Yeah. Yeah, he's the king of his own castle. Just he's letting Candy think that he's the king, <laughs> but he's not. Stephen is the Stephen's like the arch manipulator who is basically cleverer than everybody else, and that's why he survived. If how, you, but how do you think the um, the the woman? She was like dressed up in amazing gowns, but she was a slave. She was Candy's slave, but he was treating her almost like a wife, but she wasn't. She's a black slave. Oh, the the oh, hang on, who in the in the um, the parliament? Oh, her, place. yeah. Well, he's like you, honey. You can stay here or something. That's the thing. So maybe Calvin doesn't even see Stephen on the same level as the other slaves. Yeah, because potentially Stephen is to Calvin what Alfred Pennyworth was to Bruce Wayne. Yeah, he's raised him. Yeah. it just so happens that with Bruce Wayne and Pennyworth. Alfred is the butler and the father figure, but he's not a slave. He's not owned by Calvin, by mm. Bruce. Stephen is owned by Calvin. Yeah. But they seem to have this much closer comrade relationship because yeah. Calvin's been brought up. Oh, Stephen's always been there. He's like his granddad. He's, he's Stephen. Yeah, he's like Grandpa Stephen. Yeah. Just so happens that the law states that Calvin owns everything. Yeah. The, the house... The, the horses, the cart, the hot box, the people, the slaves. Yeah, and so Stephen stands that... with his with his hand on the back of Calvin's chair, <clears throat> like almost a, cradling him. Yeah, like a ventriloquist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Orchestrating the dummy. Yeah, I just feel Stephen knows that if Calvin wasn't there, then he would be susceptible to the hot box, to the dogs, mm. mm-hmm. potentially being sold off to the Australians. Oh, he's that'd be just the property. Yeah. And it just so happens that he's got a sweet deal where he has some status and he and has some influence. And he'd be an idiot to fuck it up. Yeah. So he's going to keep doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they come in and he's thinking, hang on, they're fucking with the person who's giving me my elevated life. Mm. How different do you think Dr. King Schultz is from Hans Lander in Inglourious Bastards? Oh, 180 degrees. Oh, really? Just... They're so, they're so different. 
Dr. King Schultz actually cares about the people he comes into contact with. Mm. Hans only cares about himself, which is evident at the end of Inglourious Bastards, where he suddenly wants to cut a deal with Brad Pitt, fucking off the Nazis, who he says only employ them. Hans really does seem to care about Django, to the point where... Schultz. Sorry? Not Hans. Oh, no, Schultz, yeah. Schultz, <laughs> Schultz really cares about Django, to the point where he even apologises at the end because he knows he's stepped over a line yeah. that he knows he can't get back from. Mm. He says, I just couldn't help myself, and then he gets shot and blown across the room. Yeah. I think that that is what differentiates them, is that caring nature. But I also think they share a lot of very similar characteristics, which might just be the vir- by virtue of casting Christoph Waltz again. Yeah. But they're both chances. They're both trying to make the best out of the situation they're in. Oh, yeah, they're wheeler dealers. Yeah, they're wheeler dealers. Everything is kind of a joke to them a little bit. Like, they're quite flippant about the way they talk about certain things. Yes. Um, but they have, a, like, a zest, a joyfulness for life. Yeah, and they find everything a bit funny. Um, and they also... Which both... is opera German. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they both think that they're smarter than everybody else. They both think that they're so clever that they are figuring a way around this world. Yes. That nobody else has actually figured out. So like... Well, they almost are. I mean, Schultz is almost... Like the retired version of Hans Lander. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, yeah, but, but he's, he's almost cleverer. Cleverer? More intelligent, yeah? yeah. Than, than everyone except Stephen, yeah. who seems to have this, this all-seeing eye. But then... Sixth sense, you might say. Hans Lander is more clever than everyone except Brad Pitt. Because <laughs> no one's cleverer than Brad Pitt. Well, in that film, yeah. I want my scalps. <laughs> and I want my scalps. <laughs> Why does Django ride that stallion bareback? Oh, I don't know. Proper rides him. Yeah, proper rides him. Proper and, he, rides and he gets him, him to do a little dance oh, yeah. for his wife. <laughs> but he does ride him bareback. Yeah. I it's, think it's I think it's oh actually because yes. Tarantino was talking about stories about Native Americans reclaiming their identities. I wonder if it's a bit of that where Native He's Americans not Native American. No, but he, there's a parallel between two oppressed peoples. So maybe he just yeah. thought the the Native Americans ride bareback, therefore they? Django is going to. I just see it as it's the the title of the film. Django is literally unchained. He escapes mm. that's just after he's escaped the Australians, he is literally... <laughs> also, fucking Australians. Fucking Australians. He's literally unchained. And he unchains the horse as well. He takes the straps off the horse. We see that in close-up. He is unchained. The horse is unchained. Mm. He doesn't want anyone or anything to be restricted again. So they both ride bareback. He's basically topless with no shoes on holding onto the horse's mane and they're mm. both riding as bare as they possibly can be yeah. towards victory. So this is the first time that Tarantino worked with Leonardo DiCaprio having tangled with him possibly playing La Hans Lander as we discussed. That would not have worked. But Leonardo DiCaprio is, he is enjoying himself. Oh my God. He is enjoying himself in a way yeah. that I hadn't really seen him so animated and so over the top he was yeah. channeling his inner daniel day lewis he was he 
I wonder if Daniel Day-Lewis actually was up for this role first because it's that kind of, that type of role. Scenery. Yeah. Like it, it, it is an absolute scenery chewing role. Yeah. But it's not hammy. It's, it's quite extraordinary to watch him. Yeah. It's bold. And you can almost feel DiCaprio releasing a sigh because he's finally got to that point where he can play this role. Like he was the heartthrob in Titanic and Romeo and Juliet. And he was fighting so hard not to be that guy. And it was 2006, he did The Departed and Blood Diamond. And then it, you know, the Diamond. Revolutionary Road, then Shutter Island in 20, uh, 2010. And it's like he was preparing to get to that point And he finally reached it with Hateful Eight. And now he's the guy. Django. Huh? Django. Oh, sorry. Hateful Eight. Yeah, with Django. I'm getting so confused. <laughs> he finally hit that point with Django. And now it's, he can do whatever he wants. He's, well, for Wall Street, he went he's on the to guy do from the Revenant. This. Yeah, exactly. He's going to go and live in Alaska and wear a bear skin and fight a bear and all this stuff. I still haven't seen the Revenant. Revenant? Revenant. Revenant. Yeah, Revenant. The Rev and Aunt. Yes, exactly. It's about a vicar and my aunt. <laughs> This, I think the cast in this film is just impeccable. It's, it's Samuel L. Jackson's best role, I think. Even better than Vince. It's, oh, it's... I mean, you know I love this when an actor steps back and mm. a character steps forward. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's got, you know, latex on and he's almost unrecognisable. He's looking like the stereotypical um, house N-words, as they refer to them. Yeah. Um, in, in that the sort of that... that that genre of film or that that era he is so evil and he's not playing samuel l jackson Mm. it's as if he's a completely different person it reminds me of his role in jurassic park only Mm. in that when we first saw jurassic park no one knew who samuel l jackson was yeah so that was brand new yeah now, when you go watch things like Shaft and the new Shaft that just came out that is absolutely dog shit. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and Nick Fury. Yeah. He's a phenomenal actor, but he does rest on his laurels. He is Samuel L. Jackson because well, when, that's his brand. When he's given a character like Stephen or uh, Glass in The Sixth Sense. Still haven't. In The Sixth Sense. Sorry. <laughs> when he plays someone like Glass in Unbreakable, I'm not going to talk about Glass, the actual film, because it's shit. Right. But... The character oh, is the character called Glass? He's called Glass. Right, I get it. In, um, in Unbreakable. And he's such a great character because it's not Samuel L. Jackson. Apart no, from, apart he's from the character. Got, yeah, exactly. Um, and he does that again with Django. Yes. Um, and it's, it's just joy, a joy to behold. I wish he would do that more. It's not, yeah, it's one of those things where it's rare for him to not play swaggering Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Uh, he can't swagger in this at all. He's got a cane. He's bent well, over. doesn't need the cane, does he? It was all uh, an act. Oh, yeah. Because at the because end, at the end he just he drops the cane, he stands up straight and he walks, oh, chest out. Yeah. He wants to die a proud man or he wants to front up hmm. to Django. That's how arrogant Stephen was. And then he gets shot. He gets his legs shot out from under him. It's all very yeah. um, eye for an eye, Hamlet style. A knee it? for a knee. Yeah, exactly. I find um, Carrie Washington actually painful to watch in this in the best way possible because she's tortured to such an awful degree and she's She's the wife she's the wife uh him him, what's her name Broomhilda and she Broomhilda (laughs) Broomhilda Hildy von Schaft oh Hildy von Schaft that's like a um shout out to Shaft oh I see oh I thought it was a dirty joke no 
but she's painful in a really great way because you can't watch you're watching through your fingers as she's tortured and um she she's the the damsel basically in this yeah. scenario she's the typical western damsel yeah. who has to be saved she's the the the, the niece that John Wayne goes out to find in the searchers. Mm, yeah, exactly. And she's she's not even trying to get out. She's just like when he finds her, she's lying on the bed, not even trying to escape. Um, yeah, which is it's very Disney crying on the bed. Yeah, it is, and it's it's troubling as a feminist, <laughs> but also it's that was the reality of that time. So that's something that was realistic. Is not that, just of that time, but of the films that this, the you know, the spaghetti yes. western, the films of the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, the exactly. Yeah. Let's move on to Quentin Tarantino, Grammar. Grammar. So, as always, we've got returning players, Christoph Waltz in his second and so far last yeah. Quentin Tarantino movie. Is he not in Hollywood? I don't think so. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe he's in one of the scenes. I mean, everyone seems to have a cameo in that film. Mm. Michael Parks is back for a cameo. Zoe Bell yeah. has her eyes in the film. Yeah, because her role was cut, wasn't it? Was it? They were going to do a whole thing with her character, but it never got shot. Oh, wow. Okay. Because yeah. the film would have been too long. I know. Samuel L. Jackson is back. Yeah. First time properly since Jackie Brown, 15 years before. Mm. He had a slight cameo role as Rufus in Kill Bill Volume 2. Yeah. Then the voiceover in Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah. He must have got paid however much oh, for an God. hour's work. Yeah. Guns, obviously. Crime. Yeah. You know, we've got thieves. We've got people who were wanted. The whole slave trade was a fucking racket. Yeah. Monologuing. But the monologuing here, like Inglorious Bastards, actually pushes the film forward. It's mm. not a case of, let's just pause, sit down and listen to a character talk. It's actually there for a reason. And it's such a great progression on from Inglourious Bastards in terms of what he, Quentin Tarantino, can do with his characters' voices. Did he yeah. win the Academy Award for the screenplay from this? Uh, let me have a look. I think it was this. Did he win for Django? Yeah, he won Best Writing and Christoph Waltz won Best Performance. Best Supporting Actor. Mm -hmm. Which he won for Inglourious Bastards as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He should win. He, he should work with Tarantino all the time. All the time, yeah. Even but if the, he's um, just doing craft surfaces. <laughs> you want kraut sausage? Herman's a German sausage? <laughs> but the monologuing is Tarantino's version of an action set piece as well. Yeah, his, his, his vocal set pieces are yeah. the action. Yeah. You know, most people would do a highway chase. His are people's. Tense people talking relations and conflict. reveal and revealing hidden agendas through the dialogue 100 percent. yeah code names code names always yeah best music i would say since kill bill the soundtrack for this is brilliant for django yeah such a good soundtrack um look the music's always good but the music isn't as zeitgeisty as it was from kill bill that might have been mm. the last time he picked something that really hit in the culture yeah yeah, and there's nothing that hits quite that hard, but there's some great, great songs like Ancora Qui, which is amazing, and Freedom. Um, there's just some great stuff in it. I think that it gives it such an energy, especially as a period film. Yeah. That that kind of modern texture to the music really gives it a bit of a... Well, that sets it apart from being just another Western. Yeah. It's in the, it's in the, the cutie verse. <laughs> I love the in-camera stunts. So all the horse work was done for real. Mm. 
it's just like the cars in Death Proof. It's in camera. Yeah. But whereas sometimes the, the, the car stuff in Death Proof, sometimes, all the time, <laughs> it's very indulgent. Yeah. And at times it climaxes as a bit of a, a damp piece of shit. <laughs> Say what you mean, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> the horse stuff here is, is really quite phenomenal. Yeah, and... There is that isn't the first credit that comes up at the end of the film says no horses were harmed in that's, the making of I this think film. that's like the third. The first is always his name, nice and big. Oh right, yeah. My name, Quentin Tarantino. Directed and it. written by. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of new things. Okay. Well, the the there's no chapters this time. Yeah, no chapters. Um, did he? He didn't do chapters in Inglorious Bastards, or did he? Yeah, he did. He did. Okay. Yeah. So no chapters. Because that was like a that was a progression from Kill Bill. Oh yeah, he brought um, that back because. Um, it worked so well Death Proof did not work yeah and Kill Bill did Um, and the other big thing that he's added to his oeuvre is the crash zoom yes on someone's face crash zoom yeah he did it on Leo's face didn't he did it on Leo and he did it on Django when I think his wife is dragged out of the hot box yes and it's really comical but that's it was weird that he decided to do it for that moment as well because I mean the hot box isn't comical but the crash zoom is Mm. so it was like oh it was comical when Leo did it because he raised his eyebrow and was a bit like Dr. Evil. Like, <laughs> whereas Django was um, meant to be an upsetting moment. Revenge. Big time revenge. He loves revenge. Big time revenge. Yeah. Revenge is a dish, dish best, best served, served cold. So that was Django Unchained, The Dear Silent, directed by Quinton Tarantino. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up next week. It's the film that Quentin Tarantino almost didn't make. Brilliant. (laughs) We'll find out what happened next week. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and TuneIn Radio so you don't miss that fucking episode. And we're on Twitter at Torn Stubbs Pod. Let us know what you thought about Django Unchained and season four of Torn Stubbs. The T in Twitter is not silent. (laughs) If you like middle-aged hipsters talking about music, go and listen to Track by Track, the Trash Music podcast in all your usual podcatcher locations. We're off to ride a stallion bareback. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. The Dear Silent. Cut! Now you've lost her.